0: Trigger warning, this podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode.
1: Yeah, over time I ended up with all kinds of illnesses, like the mold, Lyme disease, implant illness. It just, I think just keeping up this charade of somebody who I wasn't, just like every day just like ate at my soul. You just, you know, after a while I'm like, I hate this schedule. I hate these movies. I've seen Casablanca 10 times. I can't, don't, cannot watch this anymore. I can't even pretend to like this anymore and I, I, I think I just broke down like my health and by that time you know Hef was a little older and so I was lucky to you know I stopped like bleaching my hair and I just I couldn't do it anymore. I, my body just it, it eats at your soul. It, not being authentic to yourself after a while just really eats at you.
2: <laughs> Hi survivors I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry, and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast.
2: Yay, another episode.
0: Another episode, and a very exciting episode for you, Tara. You're very excited about today's guest, aren't you?
2: Oh, yes. No, I'm just obsessed with the Playboy series, the Playboy drama, in a sense. I don't like drama, but there's a lot going on there that needs to be unpacked.
0: Yes. Well, wasn't the show The Girls Next Door, wasn't that the big thing, the big show?
2: Oh, yeah. No, that's what I grew up with, watching all the girls on Girls Next Door. And then Crystal Hefner, she was actually the last season. Holly, Bridget, and Kendra were the first couple seasons. I believe they did it up to like four seasons.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: then the last season was with Crystal and then the twins, the Shannon twins.
0: Well, I have a different experience of Playboy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your
0: experience. I just remember, you know, just somebody snuck me a magazine when I was in high school and I was like, what is this? You know, I used to read it for the articles, but there was actually in the late 90s, early 2000s, they had a lot of really good writers and a lot of people that wrote for Playboy wrote for other magazines like Esquire, GQ, um, and were published authors, New York Times bestsellers that wrote a lot of really great stories. They had a really great fiction setting, um, section in that magazine. And a lot of people went on to have like great writing careers that started over at Playboy, writing like freelance articles for them. So it, it, there is something to be said about that. But yes, yeah, so of course, it was to see the pretty girls, <laughs> which is how I know that whole world. I remember first coming to LA and everybody would talk about the mansion, the mansion, the mansion. And I was invited several times and I never went. Um, I don't know why, but I just never went. I was just never really that interested. It just kind of felt a little lecherous to me, but um, now I'm kind of like, oh, man, I probably should have gone just at least to say, hey, I went. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't that big of a deal to me.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I almost went to a few parties, but I was very loyal in, in relationships, and mm-hmm. I really wasn't wild, <laughs> but I was like maybe it would be cool to send in photos and my sister yeah. almost sent in photos and then it was so funny. My mom got asked to pose for Playboy but didn't.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay. This is a little TMI. Um, I did meet, <laughs> I, I was at the Playboy 50th anniversary party at the, um. I was at the Palms, the Palms Casino. Yeah. Okay. In and, Vegas? I meet, and I did meet Hugh Hefner at the time and I did meet the girls that were with him too. So I think it was like the Holly and the, it, this is like, what was this 2003 2004? There with a girl that I was seeing who was in the magazine and at the time, and so it was a whole thing. So oh, nice, I was there for that, and I did meet Hugh Hefner, but I never made it to the mansion because I never really cared that much. But
2: oh my gosh, want to know something funny? Now you're bringing back memories for me, too. I remember going to the Ivy mm-hmm. and going shopping on Rodeo Drive, having a day out there because. You know, when you live in Orange County, you're like, okay, let's make a day out of going to Rodeo Drive. Sure,
0: of course.
2: And I just remember sitting next to production when they were having a meeting with Holly, Bridget, and Kendra. Oh, okay. At the Ivy. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. And then later down the road, we'll have a meeting with Connie Britton at the Ivy.
0: Oh, interesting. For Dirty John. Dirty John. Yeah. There you go, the Ivy. So if those of you know, the Ivy is not on Rodeo Drive. It's on Robertson Boulevard in West Hollywood, but it is a very posh place to go eat. I've gotten food poisoning not once, but twice at the Ivy. <laughs> so, but it may have also been partially to blame because back in the day when I drank, I maybe had a few too many famous Ivy gimlets. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure that had something to do with it, but I don't know for sure.
2: But Yeah, I think I had a stomach ache because I ate too much red velvet cake.
0: Yeah, I ate a hamburger there once and I got really bad food poisoning. But again, could have been. <laughs> but I would think that the vodka in the gimlets at the Ivy would have, would have killed that. But anyways, for those of you who want to know the recipe, I still remember it. It's vodka, roses, lime juice, and then they put mint in the gimlet. And then they do a splash. So it's almost like a vodka mojito in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah. It's
0: the Ivy that, gimlet. That
2: sounds interesting.
0: Yeah. Back in the wild and crazy days. But yeah, so today we have Crystal Hefner, who is the last wife of Hugh Hefner, the widow of Hugh Hefner, right?
2: Oh yeah, she was with him when he died. Mm -hmm. And she literally spent the night in the room with him the night of his death.
0: Yeah, so she tells us all about that. And you guys discuss things like Curse of Control, and all that, f- all those fun topics, right?
2: Oh yes, no, and it's so crazy because I had a friend today post her experience about the mansion, and also post how Crystal came out with her book and how she had a quite different experience. Mm-hmm. But I also think that so many people are still looking through the rose-colored glasses sure. with that
0: it presented itself as being a very glitzy and glamorous place and look i knew a, like i know i knew a lot of girls when i moved to la that were in the magazine that were always going to parties there where they were always inviting me and again i never went but i do remember there's this sort of like it it was like this crumbling facade it almost reminded me if for anybody that's ever read great expectations like the mansion or like it had a little bit of a gray gardens feel i mean not okay. nearly as mad but like parts of it were dilapidated and it was like falling apart because, you know, there was no money and it was the upkeep wasn't there, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like one of those historic, like old Hollywood iconic things that just kind of...
2: Yeah. No. Well, I also think of Gatsby.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The great you Gatsby. Know? Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. You know,
2: the light at the end Howard of the... Howard Hughes, Howard yeah.
0: Hughes, the same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what do you say we get into our interview with Crystal Hefner?
2: Yes. Let's get into it. Yes. Well, Crystal, thank you for coming on today. Why don't you start to share a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your book? My name is Crystal Hefner
1: and I recently wrote a book called Only Say Good Things. I have it right here. It's about my decade that I spent at the Playboy Mansion about my marriage to Hugh Hefner. And also about my childhood, which I thought was important to include things in my childhood that pretty much like led me to the mansion and led me to marry a man that was 60 years older than myself. It's been a crazy ride. A lot of therapy since the mansion and now I'm at a place where I can share this story, hopefully help others that have been through similar situations of power imbalance and yeah, just uh, put my truth out there. I feel that Hef controlled the narrative for so long and um, other voices are very important um, to come out of this place.
2: Thank you. And I think it was really interesting in your book how you talked about you being in appeasement mode all the time and you appeasing to him and appeasing to other men and how we were kind of taught that in society as well that we needed to... Be a secondary person to these men and help them with their careers, be that person and just make sure that they're always happy. And I notice a lot of, you know, trauma bonding in the book as well of him, you know, getting someone to come in, seeing the world as. through the rose-colored glasses, in a sense. I really love that you talked about all of that. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to realize that you were living in this mode? I think it started when I was younger.
1: You know, my dad passed away, and my mom and I didn't really have any money. And so you kind of learn at a young age to just kind of fit in and don't be too outspoken. And it's kind of how I was when I was younger, so... By the time I got to the mansion and I was with Hef, I feel that I was the perfect person for him because I didn't speak up. I didn't really have my own opinions. I was basically his mirror, like reflecting his, you know, self-importance back at him. And I think that's one of the reasons he liked me, loved me, <laughs> whatever, because because I was his mirror for sure. But you lose yourself in that process. You, you completely lose yourself. You know, after leaving the mansion, I had no idea who I was. I'm still figuring it out.
2: I feel like I like to call that a narcissist dream because you're easy, you're agreeable, you're going with the flow. You're just like, okay, like whatever you want and doing things to help him. And I like the fact that, well, I don't like that you had to do this because, you know, it's a survival mechanism that we lived in and, you know, I think a lot of people that are listening can agree and have been through this themselves that until you're out of it you don't realize how much it affected your body. And I think it really is interesting that we'll talk about later is your recovery and you also going to the Amen Clinics because I'm a fan of Dr. Daniel Amen and we had on Tana Amen on the podcast as well. But what was it like to go through this healing journey and also realize that he was a narcissist? Gosh, I guess
1: it really hit home that he was a narcissist when I started writing about different stories in the book. Um, how one of the guests had given him a book of everything that happened on his birthday, like th- date throughout the years. And when the articles weren't related to him, he just threw the book in the trash. Um, certain things like that and the way he was just so controlling and everything had to be a certain way all the time. Uh, the narcissism like really, really came out. Um, but he, I don't know, I, I guess going into the mansion, like I had nothing, like I, I was 21. I, my judgment isn't fully formed at that time and I had nothing. So I was just going to do everything I could to make him happy. And, That involved like just losing myself into whatever he wanted and expected of me like emotionally, physically, sexually, everything. Um, I became the perfect mold. So as I'm healing and especially as I'm trying to date, it's become very hard. When I was at the mansion, I was rewarded for being codependent. So he just wanted me near him at all times. He thought if I was going to be out past curfew or past dark I was like running off to like meet some guy because that's what he would do he would go out to the clubs and pick up women and so he was just very controlling very narcissistic and you know I've had to learn how to have healthy relationships and I think I'm still learning because I've been in a few bad ones since then but um like falling in the same trap uh like oh that's not love that's manipulation so I'm still learning myself and it's, it's been a struggle.
0: Obviously, you didn't go into this expecting the result of what it, it ended up being. And you, you went into this, you know you were seduced by this world. And I'll say this as someone who I came from a very traumatic childhood background um, from a very small town in Ohio. I landed in L.A. and all of a sudden I was this, this handsome guy and, and I got a lot of attention immediately. And I had never had that before in my life was obviously, as a young male, I was a target of what they call the Velvet Mafia, right? So I remember going to parties with very famous, wealthy gay men and seeing the troves of young, of other young men, (laughs) whether gay, straight, bi, whatever, all vying for attention. And and I I mentioned earlier before the interview, I had many opportunities to go to the mansion. I just was kind of, put off by that. And I think that's probably why. But there is such a seductive nature to these types of situations when you come from nothing. You don't even have to be sold a bill of goods. You're just like, it's so much glamour. But just the total seduction of the Hollywood dream that we're all sold as children on television to see that unfold. Like, what was that like for you?
1: Gosh, I think, you know, coming from kind of a broken family and home, and I think it's this feeling of, wow, like, I could really belong here. I mean, that and that to me that felt a little bit more powerful than love, like, to finally, like, belong somewhere. You know, I was just jumping and skipping different houses, apartments when I was young, and to feel that I, I belong somewhere and somebody, like, rich and powerful and famous, like, wants me around and there there were in the beginning so many other girls, but slowly, as I just became like into all the same things hef was into and kind of mirrored him, and oh, then these girls started going away, and I became you know girlfriend number one in the in the bedroom with him, and I'm like wow, i i've I've won <laughs> like it's, it's so it's it's disturbing thinking back, but um, yeah, it was almost I don't know, you just you just, you're just so desperate to to belong. And especially in somewhere like that, if you feel like you belong, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good feeling.
0: Yeah, I'm sure.
2: I think that when there's competition also with other women, it makes you kind of want something more, especially because you're in that survival mode. And you're like, okay, if I don't, do something good enough for him, then I'm not going to be chosen and I'm going to be kicked out of this house. Do you feel like that was also a part of the reason of what was making you sick to begin with? Absolutely. I think over time, yeah,
1: over time, I ended up with all kinds of illnesses, like the mold, Lyme disease, implant illness. It just, I think just keeping up this charade of somebody who I wasn't just like every day just like ate at my soul. You just, you know, after a while I'm like, I hate this schedule. I hate these movies. I've seen Casablanca 10 times. I can't, don't, cannot watch this anymore. I can't even pretend to like this anymore. And I I, I think I just broke down like my health. And by that time, you know, Hef was a little older. And so I was lucky to, you know, I stopped like bleaching my hair and I just, I couldn't do it anymore. My body just... It it eats at your soul. Not being authentic to yourself after a while just really eats at you.
0: How long was that period, though?
1: Gosh, I feel like I couldn't be myself until after we got married. Then I think I kept it up for like seven years somehow. Wow. Like feeling like I was 24-7 just being... I don't know. It's like surveillance on you 24-7. There's no privacy. There's no anything. It's a 24-7 thing that you sign up for being there.
0: I remember when it came to LA, I was on a movie set and they had just done minority report with Tom Cruise. And I said, "What was it like working with Tom Cruise? Because this guy was like the second AD. So he was working with him pretty extensively, right? And he said, the thing is, is that Everyone's always focused on him, so for twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, he has to be Tom Cruise. Like the guy seems like he has no off switch; he's always on. I'm like, God, that's got to be exhausting. That must be the same thing for you, having to be in those situations of just under this microscope, right?
1: Yeah, feeling feeling always always on. It's definitely it definitely does something to your psyche where where you're like, who am I? <laughs> what am I? You know, a lot of that stuff. Like, I hate it. I hated wearing heels and wearing all these stupid little outfits for the parties. I hated like dressing, you know, scantily clad or whatever. Like I hated it. I just wanted to be in a tracksuit or pajamas, like real pajamas. (laughs) Um, the lifestyle was just, just not fun for me. And I don't know, I guess it was fun for Hef. Hef Hef became... Have kind of became this character because, you know, he was a total nerd growing up in his school and the girls he liked always went on dates with somebody else and not him. And I think he kind of molded himself into this character, you know, the smoking jacket that he kind of copied from the the movies from the 30s and all these type of things. And he just molded himself into this character And I think because the character was something that he wanted to be, that it was much easier for him, but he was able to keep it up the rest of his life.
2: See, when you say that, I'm just thinking of the average narcissist in a way because they always get this character that they have to be and they have to own up to a certain level and they always have to be in it. And there was other things I was telling Collier the other day. I was like, It's really interesting to me that he always had to have the same meal all the time, basically. And he had to have that control even in that aspect. And to me, that's a sign of a, that's a red flag. It's weird because you kind of make excuses
1: for people when you're in it. You know, like, oh, he's uh, just a creature of habit. Or, you know, just, it's very, very interesting that you point that out. Because, yeah, he had to have the same food, the same soup, the same... If there was a napkin missing, he'd get upset at the people, like, where is it? The... And then people would be running to get him a napkin. And everyone was on edge. Everyone was on edge. And and I think if he wasn't narcissistic and he was just a cool boss, everyone would have been more chill. But everyone was afraid of him, you know, and, and no one was allowed to call him Hef. It was always the boss or Mr. Hefner. And, uh, yeah, it was he was the <laughs> the king of his castle. That's for sure.
0: Did you ever see Woody Allen's Celebrity?
1: No, not that I, I mean, maybe with-
0: Kenneth Branagh plays Woody Allen in the in the film, but it's about our obsession with celebrity long before, like it came out in like the late nineties. It almost feels like these types of, th- this type of culture, especially Playboy, because of everything that it, it was, it just, the, the magazine, the, the history, this facade that Hafner created, it's almost like an Ouroboros that just like eats its tail right it's constantly like just trying to eat itself because that's
1: creepy yeah <laughs> but it, but
0: it, but it's it, wouldn't you you think that because he's putting out f- fake you, you a, a phony because what now I mean I don't I don't know his personal financial fails but affairs but they went bankrupt right the magazine wasn't doing well for decades it was all you know I heard the parts of the house were dilapidated like you know all the I mean you correct me if I'm wrong but it just was such a facade that when you're trying to keep that up, it's like nobody wants to peek behind the curtain. But behind the curtain, it's just you know being tr- being surrounded by a chorus of sycophants has to be exhausting for someone like him and everybody else. It's like, don't you just want to say, can everybody just cut the shit here? Can everybody just level? Yeah, just be on the level.
1: Yeah, it's that's true. And and they never did. Like even him himself, he was obsessed with celebrities. You know, he had a wall, the whole hallway of the upstairs of the mansion, which is a long hallway, was filled with photos with him and a celebrity. Like, it's like, you know, him with Scarlett Johansson, him with Donald Trump, him with whoever, you know, just lined the halls. If there's any celebrity around, he wanted to make sure to get a photo. So so it, it really... Reminds me of what you just said. How it just like all eats itself and <laughs>
2: this continue loop of weirdness. Yeah, I think it's all fascinating. And even I remember wanting to send pictures into Playboy. You know, hoping for a certain life and hoping they dis- I get discovered and my sister gets discovered. And I think that it was really such a big thing that it really created, if you even had a problem with anything, you can't stand up to him because there's so many people that enable his behavior.
1: So many. Like, he could tell people this guy was a different color and everyone would just agree with him. It's it's really, that's really weird. It's like the emperor's new clothes or whatever, <laughs> like that kind of vibe. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember wanting to be a playmate or be part of it. And I would see all these women. And I'm like, wow, they're so powerful. And they have the world at their feet. And they could do all these things that they want to do. And it's not necessarily the case. Like when I started being a part of the world, like a lot of these women, they're like one and done in the magazine. They get their $25,000 check. They're trying to get other jobs. It doesn't work. You know, how many really famous playmates have there been? You know, it's been like Pam Anderson, Jenny McCarthy... And in a cool, you know, I can't, the list, the, it's not a big list. And a lot of these girls just disappear. You know, they, they pose naked for the world to see all their naked photos for, you know, as long as the internet lives on. And it's sad, really, what, what people expect and what their reality is. Cause I, you know, I still see these women in like their forties and fifties and they're still just like all dolled up to their playboy days. It's like, we, we all age and I don't know, it's just this, some of the dreams, like, it's it's not what it's all cracked up to be, which is what we're talking about in general, but for, you know, for, I guess for half, it wasn't, it was a facade, and for the women, it wasn't, it wasn't what they expected.
2: Yeah, and I think that there's so many that still look up to him in a sense, because so many people still have the rose-colored glasses on. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I, uh, and my the book's
1: not out yet and i i still have all these people that are like how dare you you know just like so mad at me oh yeah he you know he's of course you want to drag drag him through the coals when he's the man's not alive anymore and i'm just like hey this is how long it take took for me to process this here it is i think the world deserves to know some truth and You know, when we had sent the manuscript to the publisher, she said, oh, this is historical. And that was the best compliment that I've ever got for the book because, you know, I hope that it it sheds a light from the other side of it. And that, yeah, I mean, we were all really compliant, but we weren't necessarily happy.
0: It's not real life. (laughs) I
1: know, right? It was like, oh, we love having pillow fights and jumping on the trampoline like in bikinis. Like, no, I, no one liked doing that. It's just a some weird fantasy that I don't know.
0: <laughs> it's not real life, and it's interesting because I know I know many girls and that that pose for the magazine and and were v- like. Very much into that, like every weekend they were at the mansion, and I was like, "This is so exhausting." But it was always the same. It was the same story, you know. They they posed, they got their check. But they were always looking for the BBD, the bigger better deal, right? Yeah, so always there to meet a guy that's going to save them. And I remember, I had, at a time, I, I had a I had a friend, and we were not romantically involved or anything. And I won't say her name, but she was <laughs> very there every weekend. And I remember saying to her, and she was in her, you know, early 30s, and she was like, I, you know, I want to start a family, I wanna have this. And I'm like, then why are you like, why is this your life? Yeah. Because no guy (laughs) that is someone who like wants to start a family and wants to to love you and treat you wants any part of that nonsense. Like real men don't really, I mean, yeah, it's fun, it's kitsch. It's like, okay, I've been there, done that, but they don't want to be involved in that world because it's Got a really seedy underbelly to it.
1: Yeah, and, that's so true.
0: You know, I ran into her in an airport a couple years ago and she's working as a flight attendant, still the same thing. And it's like, you know, and yes, has a great life. And it's not to admonish anything that she's done, but like I've just missed her, you know, that just passed her by. Yeah. And I felt bad because I was like, God, you were so seduced that this is like a lotto ticket, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people, a lot of tickets, and Tara and I talk a lot on this program with like true crime. Mm. And how victims are getting their stories out, or they or they get on a show, and then they hope that that's their big ticket, right? And it's the same thing, and it, and it's there's this lot of like inflated optimism that exists around these. I mean, it's like an empire, right? Yeah. It exists around this.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, and it, and it's hard. And I remember, like, I had a big case of imposter syndrome. Like, why am I here? Why am I like, you know, half the number of one girl? And I remember on Sundays, girls would come up and. You know they're trying to get a little closer to him while he's playing backgammon. You know I have to be like in the the Chase Lounge that's next to him while he plays, so he can keep his eye on me, I guess. And then these girls are trying to get closer than I am to him, and and I'm I, I feel bad. I'm like I'm sorry. Like there's only kind of one spot, and I'm in it. Like I I I did feel bad because it's like there weren't many spots, and yeah, it was it's hard. There there wasn't many options people might think and the people that came to the mansion were most of them were totally gross unless it was like a a novel type thing where it's like a one-off you know some of the celebrities would come like I'd see like you know Justin Bieber or like Kylie Jenner just like the one-off type of things but um lots of the people that came there were just gross and they just wanted to I don't know add a name to their black book and you know, a lot of those celebrities I'm still friends with, but just like, because <laughs> you just see them all the time,
2: <laughs>
1: but yeah. I just, grain of salt. You have to, got to take it with a grain of salt.
0: <laughs> a friend of mine dated Bill Maher for a long time, so. I
1: he you. would always be up there. And, and like, I love
0: Bill Maher, but.
1: <laughs> uh, as soon as he showed up, like the seas parted and heff and Bill Maher, like got together to have a some deep discussion about whatever. <laughs> it was weird
2: oh my gosh yeah now we have a lot of mutuals too I realized I just like reading your book and I'm just like laughing with certain things I don't want to say like people's names because I don't want to like you know offend them <laughs> in any way but I'm just like oh I could see how she would act that way or I could see how she would do that or you know and the different dynamics and I'm just like but I would also be pissed if I was in your shoes.
1: The world is weird. And I'm like, I don't, at this point, I'm like, I don't care. I'm calling everybody out. <laughs> because, it. because it's like, I don't know. If I'm shitty, like, I want to be called out for it. P- uh, people said to me with Holly Madison, they're like, oh, I can understand why Holly was mean and ch- trying to kind of be on my side. And like, we were all mean. We were all just trying to survive that place. You know, there weren't many spots and everyone wanted them. So we we were all mean, myself included. And there was no other, it was cutthroat. So there was no other. Yeah. Female friendship was non existent or it was fake there. So.
2: Yeah. Well, we're all like, distra- <laughs> yeah, I have a, like, we're Instagram friends, but like, no, my mom's assistant was her assistant. And so we have that weird connection. I think that everybody has their own unique story in a different perspective and just I think that when you talk about stuff sometimes people can go after other people without being like hey we're actually cool <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like that kind of happened to us with a certain situation where I kind of told someone to fuck off and they had a large following and then all their followers came after me and then Like, we worked it out, like, three days later, but everybody still comes after you and has, like, an opinion about a certain situation when it's, like, sometimes everybody has their own story and you just have to respect each person for who they are and what they went through, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think just reading your book, your story is incredible. And there's things that you talk about, like, sexual abuse as a kid And I think that's really important to talk about itself because so many kids go through that. And that's something that is so hard for a kid to come out and share, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, my youngest memory that I talk about in the book is when, you know, my friend, um, her dad was like starting to try and do things to me while I was trying to sleep and um my memory is a bit fuzzy, but I do remember the cops coming to my house the next day and asking me if anything had happened. And I was like, oh, no, I was like embarrassed and shame or and I was like, oh, nothing happened. Like, no, everything's fine. And then carrying later into, you know, late teens. I mean, this is before a mansion, so it's before I'm 21. And, you know, people just pushing me a little too far. And I'm like, OK, if I just have sex with these people, it'll be over with. Or if I just... Um, just trying to convince myself or just try and get through it when really these people shouldn't have put my, put me in that kind of situation. Um, But I I do wish I was stronger of a person and had a stronger voice because thinking back to it, it's like, you know, it kind of gives you the ick a bit. And um, yeah, I I just, I guess it's something I just try not to think about too much, but, but uh, yeah, it makes me want to raise children that are, that have Voices and use them.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And thank you for sharing that. I think it's important when you're younger to know that no means no, and that if someone is touching you in any certain way, that those boundaries need to be respected. But when you live in this appeasement mode, and I've lived in this mode, and people ask me, like, how come you have so many terrible things happen to you, Tara? And I'm like, um, because I'm a narcissist dream. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's hard like when someone's wanting sex from you and you just give in because you're just like, it's easier just to give in than to fight this person away or to establish my boundaries at times. I could really relate to you in that aspect. And I think that it's important to share that You know, when you go through trauma, sometimes it's multiple traumas, and these abusers are much more complex, and these relationships with the abusers are much more complex as well. Have you done EMDR training? Yeah, yeah, I've done some of that. Okay. I found it to be helpful. Okay. And then have you had any of the memories from, like, the past come up and just, like, surprise you at times? Um. I still dream about the mansion which is really
1: interesting. I dream that I don't like one dream I I walk into Hef's bedroom and he's kind of on the floor with a bunch of women and I don't know it's kind of not like sex related but they're all just kind of there maybe it's going to happen or maybe and I I have this like floating above feeling like I I don't need to be here. I don't really need to be a part of this and, and I feel that's part of healing and moving on like oh I don't need to I don't need to like be into this because the sex part at the mansion was very hard like it was very uh mechanical robotic shut off you know Hef was a narcissist so he doesn't have to worry about trying to be like a good lover or anything like he just it's just was whatever he wanted happened and that was hard and it's weird at the same time. I'm still trying to make sense of this. So one of my friends I'm so close to, her name's Amber in the book. Like, because we started out with group sex, I'm like, oh, I I don't want to do this by myself. I'm too afraid. So I had a friend named Amber who I would, you know, Hef would give her gas money, which, you know, two, three thousand dollars for gas money is a little <laughs> you know, it's obviously cover for something else, but um I would have her come and like help me and I'm still trying to unpack that because I'm like, okay, we're friends, but we're also like it's almost like I had I had a friend there to like help me through it, which is kind of weird to think about looking back. But I'm glad I had her because if I hadn't, then it would have been been harder. (laughs) It's very strange. I don't know. (laughs) I'm totally open to talk about it, anything, but I'm like making sense of some of the stuff I, I am still working on.
0: This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Crystal Hefner. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes.
2: On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry.
2: And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast.
0: We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.